There's this scene in the 2004 film Team America World Police, where UN weapons inspector Hans Blix confronts Kim Jong-il about inspecting his nuclear program. Blix demands access to inspect Kim's palace, or else, quote, we will be very, very angry with you, and we will write you a letter telling you how angry we are. Now that's about as sophomoric a movie reference as you're going to hear me make on this podcast, but I think it does a pretty good job of illustrating the popular notion, at least here in the U.S., of how the United Nations operates. As the U.N. approaches its 70th anniversary this month, few would question its value as a forum for discourse on global issues. But the fact that the U.N. is limited in its ability to dictate what member states do makes it hard to understand how it can accomplish anything. Today we're going to get a glimpse of just one of the ways the UN manages to lead without the need of force. In this case, in the field of human rights. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by HKS Professor John Ruggie, who's twice served in senior roles at the UN, including a stint as Assistant Secretary General for Strategic Planning under Kofi Annan, and later as the Secretary General's Special Representative for Business and Human Rights. Professor Ruggie, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be with you. You know, when I think of uh, human rights organizations, mm-hmm. NGOs spring to mind. Right. But your work is focused on specifically on for-profit organizations, corporations, and how they can impact human rights around the world. Right. Can you explain how you got into this particular line of uh, work in the first place? Well, the the um, NGOs, the advocacy groups, are and always have been the driving force. Um, putting these issues on the, on the global agenda. Um, and it, they used to, fo- Amnesty, for example, one of the oldest uh, of these organizations, focused initially on prisoners of conscience um, and trying to get them released um, from, uh, from, from prison by pressuring states through various uh, ways. Mm-hmm. And so historically, um, this has been a, a, um, a, a dynamic that's taken place between NGOs and states um, starting in the 1990s, when, with the explosion of globalization, people discovered that corporations, especially um, large multinational corporations, um, have an enormous effect uh, on, on the enjoyment of human rights. Uh, they can be either part of the problem um, or they can be part of the solution, and therefore attention has increased um, on multinationals. The, the challenge has been that there have been no standards. Um, the standards, the international human rights protection standards, if we can call them that, um, all were, were based on the idea that states, one, were the violators of human rights, state agencies, uh, but they also needed to be the protectors of human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it never included the private sector. Uh, in the equation, and that's what changed largely as a result of globalization. So when you talk about human rights, what, do you, what does that include? Uh, it includes uh, uh, workplace standards. Um, Rana Plaza, 1,200 people died when the building collapsed, uh, in which um, uh, T-shirts and, 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 and other clothing apparel was being manufactured for European and American retailers. This was in Bangladesh? In Bangladesh, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, uh, so it, it, it includes workers' rights, uh, uh, beginning with basic safety issues and, and, and moving up to 
freedom of association, collective bargaining, um, regulation of, of, of overtime, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then you have a bundle of rights that go along uh, with um, with various communities. So, if you um, look at the at the extractive industry, whether it's mining, oil, or gas, um, they have enormously big physical footprints. Uh, and often, when you start a new mine, for example, um, communities have to be moved. Um, how do they get moved? Is there adequate consultation? Is there adequate compensation? Mm -hmm. uh, or do the bulldozers show up one morning and just, you know, uh, push the houses or the whatever, um, the huts uh, <laughs> yeah. into, into the ground and, and, and let people fend for themselves? Mm -hmm. uh, internet issues having to do with, uh, with internet um, providers, um, the privacy concerns, the, the right to privacy. Uh, so the, the, there's a whole array of, of issues um, affecting virtually every um, e every kind of industry. I did a, a, a survey um, when I began my uh, mandate as special representative of the Secretary General um, of um, is there any is there any human right that is not affected by business. And you can't come up with many. Um, uh, somebody mentioned, um, well, uh, judicial issues um, are not in the hands of business. My response was, yes, but judges can be bribed. <laughs> so we, we essentially said uh, it would be foolish to try to single out any particular kind of human right or type of human right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's across the board. So you were uh, driving force in the development and adoption of the UN's um, guiding principles on uh, business and human rights, mm -hmm. which were implemented in 2011. Why did the UN feel it necessary to invest resources into putting together this this list of these standards? Well, I think I think the rec the, the there was a recognition that the time was ripe uh, to do this. Um, Advocacy groups would put pressure on companies. Uh, each advocacy group had their own idea of what the company should be doing with regard to human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, the companies would respond by saying, well, we, we can't respond to all of these requests because they're all over the place. They're inconsistent. They're contradictory. Some are complementary. Um, and the UN itself um, came to realize um, that its focus on states was insufficient. Uh, because of the role of the private sector, not only in the area of human rights, but in everything, poverty reduction. You can't, you, you can't do poverty reduction without involving the private sector. Mm -hmm. So there was a general feeling that the time was ripe to try to uh, build enough consensus so that you could work toward a set of common standards that um, would be applicable to um, the responsibilities of states and companies alike with regard to uh, the protection and respect uh, for human rights. So can you explain how the guidelines work? Well, the guiding principles uh, sort of, they, they rest on, on what, what we did, ended up describing as, as pillars, three pillars. One is the, re the duty of, of, of states, the legal, the international legal obligations that states undertake when they ratify human rights treaties. Um, among those obligations is um, that um, they have a duty to protect against human rights abuses 
not only by state agents, but by third parties, which includes business. So mm -hmm. that's the first element. The second element is the responsibility of companies uh, to respect human rights, which means to not infringe on the rights of others as they go about their business. Uh, and that requires that they have systems in place to know and show that they respect human rights. And that's where the human rights due diligence element comes in. Mm -hmm. And the third uh, pillar is access to remedy, which includes a judicial remedy, but also non-judicial remedy, um, alternative dispute resolution techniques, which can be um, both public sector, but they can also be private sector. There are um, more and more companies are adopting uh, grievance mechanisms right at the local level uh, to sort of head off um, to deal with small grievances or relatively small grievances before they escalate into major confrontations. These guidelines uh, were accepted in 2011. Mm -hmm. Has there been enough time to actually do an analysis and find out whether they've been effective? Yeah, there, there is a, um, um, a London-based nonprofit called the uh, Business and Human Rights Resource Center that sort of tracks um, uh, the, situ the, the business and human rights situation. Um, and the best information that we have from them um, is that certainly leading companies have picked up on this con um, in, 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 in a significant way. Um, and um, the, there's, there's many elements to the guiding principles. Um, um, well, what, but the preventative side of it, that is to say, the core element uh, for, of the guiding principles for companies um, is to um, adopt um, uh, or, 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 or to conduct appropriate human rights due diligence, that is to say, to actually assess um, what, the potential, what the actual and potential impacts, adverse impacts, will be of whatever activity that they are planning mm -hmm. to engage in. And, and then to process that information in their plans uh, and to provide uh, avenues for redress so that people can actually um, not only be consulted but also lodge complaints about um, what the company may be doing. Now, the idea of corporate social responsibility is relatively new. Mm -hmm. You, as in your role at the UN, were meeting with corporations mm -hmm. um, and other stakeholders in trying to develop these standards. Did you find that over time uh, they became more receptive to this idea that they had some responsibility to uh, fulfill? Yeah, I mean you can't, you can't generalize across all businesses. There's 80,000 multinational corporations in the world and they have about 800,000 subsidiaries. And so it's, you know. You, you didn't meet with all of them? I didn't meet with all, no. It, it, I, I spent six years doing that, but I did not meet all 800,000. Uh, but uh, uh, it was clear that a community of practice was being built up, uh, especially among the leading companies. That is to say that uh, they increasingly realized that they needed to, to onboard um, um, the capacity uh, to deal with, these, uh, uh, with, with some of the social and environmental consequences uh, of their actions, if only to reduce uh, reputational risk or the risk of being sued by somebody uh, is, and that sort of thing. It's hard to imagine a for-profit uh, institution pursuing something that is not to make a profit. It, was this drive towards uh, responsibility principally to avoid lawsuits? 
In some cases, um, um, companies began to see competitive advantages. Um, uh, I remember one CEO visiting us um, in, in, in the Secretary General's office, um, and he happened to be the CEO of one of the world's biggest oil companies. And he said, look, uh, we are basically an engineering business. Mm. Um, everybody can pay the same salary. Um, what's our competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis other people, uh, other, other uh, companies? Um, we, we want to retain the best possible engineers. We want to make them feel good about where they work. We want them to feel committed to the company. Mm -hmm. And one way to make them feel committed uh, is to ensure that the company does everything possible to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So there's a variety of motivations. Also, the time, the time element plays into this. There are, there are some um, CEOs, um, and it, it depends in part on, on the industry as well, who have a fairly longer time horizon than others. You know, the, the a mining company is going to be in a community for 30 years. Uh, and mm -hmm. if they get off on the wrong foot, it's very hard to correct. Right. Um, uh, if you're sort of a hit-and-run business, it's a different story. You don't care as much. Right. The 70th anniversary of the UN's founding is quickly approaching. These seem to be kind of concrete examples of how the UN can actually make a difference. Right, right. Um, do you think that um, this is one of the more effective ways for the UN to exert some force for good in the world? Uh, absolutely. I, I think the, 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 the two major contributions, the, in, the two major sort of indispensable contributions of the UN is one, it's convening power. Uh, it, it can bring people together and countries together uh, to address issues um, um, that, uh, th for which the opportunity wouldn't otherwise uh, exist. Um, and secondly, um, it has a, a, norm, a normative um, role. That is to say, um, when, for example, um, uh, the idea of corporate responsibility began, corporate social responsibility began to emerge, um, countries like China or India um, or uh, Brazil were highly resistant to sort of private sector ideas for what corporate social responsibility would mean. Um, what do you mean by private sector ideas? Uh, when uh, business associations would come up with their own set of standards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, China would say, who are you? You know, you're the chemical industry. Why should we be paying attention to you? Right. But when, when the UN based um, recommendations on sort of universally accepted principles that governments themselves had endorsed, um, it, China was fine with that, you know, and, and, and India was fine with that, and Brazil was fine with that. So the, the convening power and the normative power um, of the UN are absolutely indispensable roles. And the third one um, is, is the, you know, um, com coming in after some disaster um, and picking up the pieces. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't anybody else um, who can, um, you know, NGOs are deeply involved in, in humanitarian um, operations, but there isn't anybody who can sort of coordinate the whole thing into a package mm -hmm. uh, and, and get access to states and, and, and mobilize resources the way the UN can. 
Uh, you've also recently been speaking about large multinational uh, organizations like FIFA mm-hmm. uh, and the Olympics mm-hmm. um, and the role that they play in human rights. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, the uh, uh, <laughs> it, it shows you how, how, how far this, this basic idea of, of human rights has traveled, uh, that the uh, one of the current frontiers is what we call mega sporting events, uh, which includes the World Cup, it includes the Olympics. Um, now, the, the, the um, host country bidders um, may or may not have adequate protections in place uh, for workers. It's clear that Qatar doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on and so forth. And so we've been increasingly reaching out to these mega sporting bodies to include in their contracts with with the bidders and with the host countries and host cities and and the, the companies that construct stadiums and all the rest of it mm-hmm. that 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 in the contractual uh, obligations there should be included uh, these provisions for. Mm-hmm. Uh, adequate uh, uh, consideration of, of, of the rights of the workers and the rights of the communities that are impacted. I, I should note uh, for our listeners, if they aren't familiar with Qatar, uh, is hosting, what is it, the 2018 uh, or 2022? Yeah, 2022. World Cup, and yeah, uh, there yeah. have been considerable questions about the um, the human rights uh, of the people who are building the stadiums. Right, they're, they're largely from South Asia. They're imported. Um, uh, labor brokers bring them in. Um, uh, safety conditions clearly were inadequate. Um, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, workers, have, have died. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that sort of thing should be unacceptable to an organization like FIFA that right. organizes a World Cup and should be included in the contractual obligations that, uh, uh, that the host country uh, is, uh, undertakes. Now, obviously, FIFA has seen some uh, pretty bad headlines recently right, itself. Right, right, right. Uh, y- you might think that they would be eager to uh, pursue something that would uh, bring them some, maybe some positive uh, publicity for once. Uh, have they been receptive? Has FIFA, the Olympics, uh, you know, all these different mega sporting events? It's very much on their agenda, um, in, in, in inc- including the International Olympic Committee, the Commonwealth Games, uh, Formula One racing, um, and FIFA um, um, itself. Um, mm-hmm. Very much on their agenda. How does an organization like that pursue? Is it just mean that they adopt the UN guidelines? Well, the FIFA, um, you know, in 2014, um, 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 we sent um, we sorry we meaning Mary Mary Robinson is the patron of a nonprofit in London called the Institute for Human Rights and Business, and I chair their uh, international advisory committee. We sent a joint letter to the head of FIFA um, saying, essentially, look, um, here are some of the uh, adverse human rights impacts of World Cup games. Mm-hmm. Um, and we suggest that you follow uh, certain procedures uh, and adopt certain, certain um, principles or requirements. Um, and FIFA, in fact, um, began a process um, um, of revising their bidding requirements uh, and has asked for help um, in, in constructing um, a, a much more robust um, system that would respect um, 
uh, that would build in uh, respect for human rights into its contracts. Um, I have one last question, and uh, it's kind of zooming out a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking about you know specific guidelines in the United Nations. You watch the news, and human rights is constantly uh, under threat in areas all around the world. It might be a little bit hard to get some perspective on the direction that we're moving. Uh, obviously, people are paying more attention to so corporate social responsibility. People are paying more attention to human rights in general. Mm -hmm. Are things getting better? Uh, in relative terms, yes. Um, are we where we should be? No. Um, I think that's the short answer. That uh, We're in a place today, um, we couldn't even have had conversations about this subject 10 years ago because people wouldn't have been known what you were talking about. Uh, sure. and, and today there are large communities of practice in the private sector mm -hmm. whose, whose job it is to manage these issues. Uh, so in that sense, we're certainly making progress. Are we where we should be? No, there's lots more work to be done. Mm -hmm. So I, I've, I've sort of described where we are, uh, not at the end, uh, but uh, not, not even at the beginning of the end, but at the end of the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harvard Kennedy School Professor John Ruggie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, you can find a link in the show notes. HKS Policycast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Photography by Tatiana Johnson. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School Policycast. You can subscribe to Policycast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter 